you're taking your seats, if you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. A little bit of a longer passage today. Uh, I'm reminded of one time when I was at Providence Presbyterian Church, young assistant pastor there. I said, certain passage in 1 Samuel, I said, I'm sorry, this is a bit longer passage in one of my good, godly encouraging elders, Chris Govero, came up to me afterwards and said, Matt, don't ever apologize for reading a long passage of the Bible. It's the Word of God. I said, you're right, Chris. I'll remember that. With that, Isaiah chapter 30. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at zone and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace." an oracle on the beasts of the Negev, through a land of trouble and anguish from where the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's health is worthless and empty. Therefore I have called her Rahab who sits still. And now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right, speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength, but you were unwilling. And you said, No, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain like a signal on a hill. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. For a people shall dwell in Zion. In Jerusalem you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as He hears it, He answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see 
your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water. In the day of the great slaughter, when the towers fall, moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold, as the light of seven days. In the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow, behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and in thick rising smoke, his lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction, and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept, in gladness of heart, as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres, battling with Brandished arm, he will fight with them. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready, its pyre made deep and wide, with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he add his blessings to it. Let's go to him now in prayer. Let's pray. O Heavenly Father, You are good, and what you do is good. Thank you for your good word to your people. Now, Father, give us ears to hear all that you have to say to us. Give us eyes that are ready to see the world as it is, see ourselves as we are, and also give us eyes to see our Savior, that we might behold wondrous things in this, your law. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of our biggest problems as Americans, as American Christians, is that we are way too much like Bond, James Bond. Give me a few minutes to prove I'm not crazy. I'm not talking about our accents or the way we drink martinis, shaken or stirred, or even our cultural obsession with sex. However, we could benefit from an extended discussion about our problems and 007's problems in that area. I'm also not recommending his latest movie, especially not that horrible ending. So what am I saying? What similarity to Bond troubles me so much? There's a scene, middle of the movie, where his on-again, off-again lover, whom he thinks has betrayed him at one point, She says to him, I know you're not built to trust. Not built 
to trust. You see, in Bond's case, he can't trust anyone, especially women, not the latest one, and certainly not the woman from four movies ago who may or may not have betrayed him. I have to re-watch that one to remember the plot twist there. Maybe all this is because he's a spy. Maybe it's all Vesper's fault. Maybe it's his parents' fault since he was an orphan. Who knows? Who cares? But in our case, we are not built to trust either. But now I'm not talking about trusting men, women, lovers, parents. No, we are not built to trust God. We're programmed with this unbiblical notion that God helps those who help themselves and we can't seem to shake it. Is He really willing and able to save me just like I am? Don't I have to clean myself up? Don't I have to do something? Or the other version looks like this. If He takes longer than I think He should to save me, shouldn't I help Him? By finding another temporary, functional Savior, even if that's forbidden? See, if you've ever felt that way, it's not just James Bond you resemble. Congratulations, you're an Israelite, spiritually speaking. You'd fit in in the 8th century B.C. if you could just speak the language. It's a tricky language, by the way. You read right to left. Because Israel is not built to trust. They're condemned to learn their lessons the hard way. They will be sowing, planting in tears when they could be reaping with shouts of joy. If only they would return to God and rest in Him. Maybe it's not too late for them, for you, for all of us. Long passage today, three broad sections. The first one is this. Our stubbornness and rebellion leads us to shame and swift ruin. Our stubbornness and rebellion leads us to shame and swift ruin. Verses 1 through 14. I might have misprinted the verses in the bulletin, by the way. Sometimes God allows <clears throat> misfortune in our lives despite our obedience. That does happen. And sometimes we just rebel. Which one was the case for Israel? Look with me at the first two verses of chapter 30. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. What's so bad about Egypt? If you ask that, that's fine. But if you were an Israelite, you should have known. First off, God has been saying since Isaiah 7, don't trust foreign nations, trust me. Trust your God and Savior. Trust me alone. So to turn away from that was rebellion. And to turn to Egypt was brazen, in-your-face sin. What's so bad about Egypt? Well, what did God think of Egypt? Exodus 13, he tells Israel, Go this way as you're leaving Egypt so that you will not be tempted to return. Deuteronomy 17, 16, Don't go down there, O king, to get more horses since, quote, the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And even more, what's, what's a common way that God refers to Egypt? The prologue to the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, the land of slavery. Egypt equals slavery. 
actually and symbolically. To turn to Egypt for help was a slap in God's face because God had conquered all the gods of Egypt. That's what the plagues are all about, by the way. God progressively conquering each and every one of Israel's gods, excuse me, of Egypt's gods. Obviously, he was more mighty than Egypt. Why trust them? Why not trust him instead like he had asked them to do all along? Israel was stubborn. They wanted what they wanted. Verse 3, Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter and the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. What's so bad about Egypt? Well, you see, Egypt was worthless. All talk, nothing to show for it. If you look back at Isaiah 20, verses 1 through 6, you'll see an episode from 10 years earlier when Egypt promised the city of Ashdod that they would help them rebel against the mighty nation of Assyria, same nation years later that's oppressing Israel one more time. How did all that go? Egypt's promise to help. Isaiah chapter 20, verse 4, So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives in the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. In other words, it's going to go badly. Egypt had no track record of success, but Israel sought them out anyway. That's why you see these envoys or messengers, ambassadors, in Isaiah 30, verse 4, because mighty Assyria was oppressing Israel, and Israel couldn't take it. They just they had to do something. That something would turn to shame and humiliation, according to verse 3, verse 5. They travel south, that's the Negeb, in verse 6, towards Egypt, to a, quote, people that cannot profit them. And then finally, Isaiah, he calls Egypt Rahab who sits still. It's a funny one. He's not talking about Rahab, the prostitute who helps the spies in Joshua 2, not her. Rahab was apparently a name for a mythical monster who represented chaos. And that name was also used to refer to Egypt. And what Isaiah is saying is that Egypt or Rahab never does anything, despite the fearsome reputation. It's all show. It's all empty. It's full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And in verses 8 through 14, Isaiah basically repeats himself. Instead of Israel's stubbornness, now he highlights her rebellion. Verse 9, For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. Israel then requests, Isaiah is sort of, mocking them, mimicking them in verse 10. Requests that God would talk about nice things, not about sin. Quote, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. And instead of her eventual shame in this section, Isaiah focuses on her swift ruin that is coming. Verses 13 and 14, I won't explain every analogy. Many of them speak for themselves. Verse 13, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out, and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel, vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. Yes, all this is because they wanted Egypt, their neighbor, to become their ally. 
But as we said, Egypt represented slavery, the thing God had delivered them from. Why would you want to go back? Of course, in the wilderness, after the Exodus, years before this, Israel did say, we want to go back to Egypt. The food was better there. As Sarah Groves once sang, they were painting pictures of Egypt and leaving out what they lack. Theologian Barry Webb says of all this, their determination to rebel against Assyria with Egyptian support is the political expression of a rebelliousness that runs much deeper. Alec Moitier says, this is only a symptom. The cause is a fundamental refusal to hear the Lord's word. That's why this text should scare you a little, even if you can't find Egypt on a map. Because we too can become like Egypt, even like Eve, not giving attention to God's word, adding to it, taking away from it. God said we can't even touch the tree. Did he? We can tune out God. We can listen to his critics who cause us to question his word. Did God really say who cause us to question God's goodness. Why won't he let you eat from that tree? You see, this is the real danger. If we ignore the good word that God has given us, his path which leads to blessing, then we start to question his goodness. Can God really save me? Is he really mighty enough? Will he really come through? And if we're convinced that he can't, or won't, in our minds, of course. Not that we would say these things in polite company, right? If we're convinced that he can't or he won't deliver, then we start to consider a number of other possibilities, a number of new saviors of the week, even if they can only deliver for a moment. Anything that might make us comfortably numb, as Pink Floyd once sang, to the pain around me. And you see, none of this is new. This was Israel's temptation 2,700 years ago. Don't listen to God. His solution is too simple. Find another Savior. It's okay. Surely we've gotten smarter since then, right? Well, in the 1600s, 2,000 years, give or take, after Isaiah, one of the smartest men in Europe thought human nature hadn't changed very much. He wrote this, Our hearts are perpetual idol factories. When one idol lets us down, we just make a new one over and over. If Egypt lets us down, we'll go flirt with another lover, another savior. Makes you think of Paul's words in Romans, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Is God going to finally be finished with us if we keep this up? Amazingly, the answer is no. And that's what you see next. After our stubbornness and rebellion leads us to shame and swift ruin, we also see this. Secondly, God's kind waiting leads us to repentance and rest. God's kind waiting leads us to repentance and rest. Verses 15 to 18. You know, it'd be understandable if God exploded in anger at this point. I mean, we've seen that in Isaiah. But it's almost like the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the, are the same God. 
Take a glimpse with me at Romans chapter 2, verse 4, and tell me if you don't see some of this in Isaiah as well, Romans 2, verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Is that not the same God you see In Isaiah 30, verse 15 and verse 18, For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning, or repentance, same word, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Verse 18, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. If you caught it earlier, Hans said the Lord longs to be gracious to you. That's the NIV translation, also a good one, how I learned it. Both of them are accurate. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. These verses have been underlined in my Bible for a few decades. I'm not sure I understood them at first, but I knew there was something special here. And also, I am aware of how verse 15 ends. But you were unwilling. Israel hasn't changed. Not yet. Not enough. They're still running willy-nilly to find someone to save them. They're still restless and looking for rest. They're going to Egypt for horses, even though Deuteronomy 17 says not to. But they're swift horses. You don't understand. These horses will save us. No, they won't, God says. Your pursuers will be even faster. One enemy will cause a thousand of you to flee. The flag and the banner will be left, but not you. Israel, God's people, are unwilling. Unwilling to listen. Unwilling to wait. Unwilling to be still and know that He is God. Is that really what God wants? Is it this simple? Don't I have to like do good things and obey the Ten Commandments? But who can? Except Jesus, who can obey them perfectly without an ounce of rebellion against God? Without an ounce of anger or greed or lust or discontent? But what if God sent a Savior who could obey all those commandments in all of those ways that we've failed in our place so that all we have to do is trust in Him and ride His coattails to glory. What if? Wouldn't we want that? Because you see, there is a real sense where in order to join this church, to be part of this church, you have to be bad enough, not good enough, to join this church. You heard me right Those of you who know our membership vows, the first one says, I believe that I deserve punishment and I am without hope except in God's sovereign mercy. Second membership vow says, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He's offered in the gospel? Receive, rest upon, what does it say in verse 15? In returning or repentance and rest, you shall be saved. Our salvation is much more passive than we would like to admit because we are not built to trust. 
We want to earn it. We want to deserve it. We want to feel good about ourselves. And it's almost like God says, feel good about me. Feel good about a God who loves you in spite of your sin, in spite of your mess. Wait for me to be gracious to you. Return to me. Repent. Turn from sin. Turn from all the other things you're trusting in. And just trust me. Rest in me. And in all that I provide for you, in quietness and in trust, shall be your strength. Are you built to trust God? Maybe not. Most of us aren't. So will He just give up on us? Or will He wait? Will He wait to be gracious to you? Will He exalt Himself or rise up to show you compassion? One commentator says of that verse, He stands on tiptoes, so to speak, ready to extend His mercy to the rebels. Not to the nice people who clean themselves up, to the rebels, the train wrecks, the hot messes. He waits for you. He rises to show you compassion. All this reminds me of a father who had two sons. One was a rule follower. We'll talk about him another day. The other was a spoiled brat and a rebel. Took his father's love for granted, just wanted his money. For some reason, the father gave it to him. The son blew it all, wasting, squandering it on wild and reckless living. Probably broke a few commandments, if not all of them, along the way. Finally, the son decided to go home. He would beg. He was unworthy. He knew it. To live like one of the servants would be fine. So he practiced his I'm sorry speech. But the father never let him finish that speech because he was waiting. He was waiting the whole time. Luke 15, 20, And he arose and came to his father. But while he, the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. He waits to be gracious to you. He stands on tiptoe to show you compassion. And he is a just God. He, he doesn't just give away the fattened calf to, to just anybody, especially not snotty, entitled sons who think they deserve all of this and more, who have forgotten that respectable sins are still cosmic treason against the Creator. But for those who wait for him, who know they need him, Oh, he's ready to throw a party. He's ready to welcome you home and hug you even if the stench of last night's sin is still on your clothes. Stop the frantic frenzy, he seems to say. Stop searching for the latest salvation of the week. Our salvation is closer now than it's ever been, Romans 13, 11 says. For Israel, who was flirting with Egypt, the slavery that they had said sayonara to, the, the answer for them was reliance, not alliance. Reliance on God, not a political or military alliance. For us, the answer is resting in what He has promised. Not a restless spirit that's searching here and there for the salvation of the weak. If I can put it in a question for us, can God be your God right now during whatever chaos you're experiencing? 
Or do you want the chaos to end first? Do you need him to end the chaos before you will trust him? Before you repent and rest? Before you will quietly wait and quickly trust? Do you need him to fix the mess inside you before you trust him? Do you need him to fix the mess around you before you'll trust him? What if he's calling you to repent and rest while he fixes the mess? The mess inside you, the mess around you, or both. He waits for you in his kindness. He didn't write you off after your first failure, and he still hasn't. He waits. What would happen if you waited for him? What would happen if you dared to trust him? May God help us see that his kind waiting leads us to repentance and rest. May we also see thirdly, finally, hopefully briefly, God's might and majesty leads us to milk and honey and healing. God's might and majesty leads us to milk and honey and healing. You see this in verses 18 through 33, 16 verses if I did my math right. So we need to paint with a broad brush here, but... Let me give you a glimpse of some other paintings based on this passage, some alternative outlines. One author says here, God shows himself to be Israel's teacher, 19 through 22, healer, 23 to 26, and warrior, 27 to 33. A weary people who were slaves in Egypt at one time, they knew the blessing of having a warrior God to deliver them. But I want to paint this a little bit differently. Focusing instead on God's might and His majesty in those final verses, 27 to 33. We won't read all of them, but yes, not again. We read them at the beginning. Yes, He is mighty. He is righteously angry at wrongdoing, at Israel's enemies in particular. And yet He is majestic as well. Verse 30. The Lord will cause His majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of His arm to be seen in furious anger, flames of devouring fire. But there's majesty here. You know, I assume some of you love winter sports. I would also assume that not all of us love icy sidewalks, sub-zero temperatures, shorter periods of sunshine in the winter. Am I right? If so, do not forget that your God is majestic, beautiful, the fairest of 10,000, the one who created colors and flowers and put our first parents in a garden in paradise. Don't forget that. God is not a God of perpetual cloudiness, even during winter. And while our majestic, mighty God, while he promises to deliver his people back then and now from their fiercest enemy, Don't miss the the shift that goes on in this passage. Verses 27 to 33, God says several times, several ways, He is going to be victorious. But this is not judgment against God's people. No, it's victory over their enemies. Specifically, Assyria is in view once again. Verse 31, the Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when He strikes with His rod. It's probably another reference to the way that Assyria got wiped out in one night. Isaiah 37, an angel of the Lord strikes down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. Kirk mentioned it last week. But God doesn't only focus on their immediate enemy. He also promises a day when he will judge the nations, it says in verse 28. All nations is the idea. 
A day that is like that day when he'll defeat Assyria, only better when he conquers all of his and our enemies, the catechism says. I've asked a few times recently, who are our enemies? They're those who hate us, whom we are called to love until they repent or until Jesus returns. And that return is what you see in this passage. But the warrior God is, is not the only thing you see in verses 19 and following. You also see more of this kind, compassionate God from verse 15, verse 18. The one who teaches them, yes, who shows them the way of peace and blessing in verse 21. And also the one who heals them. The one who erases seemingly every negative effect of the previous judgment. Some authors tie it all the way back to Isaiah chapter 1. The bad things happening in Isaiah 1 are being undone here in these verses. And because he teaches them properly, they will put away the idols that just lead to their ruin in verse 22. And there's also more healing, more blessing throughout verses 19 to 25. You see a God who wipes away their tears once again in verse 19. Who's ready to answer them with grace. A God who's ready to rain blessing upon them in verse 23. You see the rain, you see the crops. You might wonder why all the agricultural language. Because that was the basis of their society and economy back then. This verse is like God making the S&P 500 come back to life. And as much as these blessings would have sounded like a return to normal, there were hints of something even better in store as well. Look with me, verse 25. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of His people and heals the wounds inflicted by His blow. Streams on a mountain peak, a sun shining seven times brighter than before. Is this back to normal? Or is this something better? Something that will only happen on the final day. Something that can only happen in the true and better promised land where sickness, sorrow, pain and death are felt and feared no more. This is only found in the true land of milk and honey, where we have all the necessities like milk, as well as all the luxuries like honey and wine and all those things, where we have all the healing we need and none of the hurts. And how does all of this fit in with what comes before? Well, remember, remember Israel was a people who was not built to trust God, so they flirted with Egypt or whoever. And all along, God was waiting to show compassion to them if they would just repent and rest. And this final section is essentially saying, if you'll repent and rest, it'll be worth it. I will bring you back to the paradise you abandoned, the peace that you forfeited, the palatial estate that you no longer deserve. I'll bring you back and it will be worth it. All the things you want now, freedom from pain, anxiety, chaos, it can be yours. It will be yours in my time, according to my plan. 
my plan of repentance and rest, quietness and trust, waiting for God to be gracious, waiting for God to rise and show compassion to us. Verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Are you tired of waiting on God? Are you tired? Because he's actually waiting for you. Waiting for you to wait for him so that he might show you all the blessings that he has in store. Are you willing to wait? Are you willing to trust? For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, waiting, trusting, it's not in our DNA, not for most of us, but oh, how we need to wait, oh, how we need to trust you. Father, would you give us eyes that can see the promises you've laid out for us? Would you give us hearts that are ready and willing to rest, resting in you, because we know that you've provided all that we need, both now and in the future. Father, help us to trust. Help us to rest, help us to wait, and help us to trust the right thing, the right God, the only true God who longs to be gracious to us. We ask all this in Jesus' great name, amen.